The martyr poets did not tell, but wrought their pang in syllable, that when their mortal name be numb, their mortal fate encourage some. The martyr painters never spoke, bequeathing rather to their work, and when their conscious fingers cease, some seek in art the art of peace. Thoughts of Emily Dickinson, whose thoughts were normally altered by publishers to fit with the convention of the time. Dickinson's poems often lacked a title, were short but to the point, and normally written in slant rhyme or near rhyme. In fact, during her life, only 12 of her poems were published. She was a recluse in the truest sense of the word, but a prolific writer. And after her death, thousands of her poems were found, and luckily for us, eventually published in their entirety and unaltered. Hello, I'm Paul Ham, and thanks for downloading this podcast. The best moments in reading are when you come across something, a thought, a feeling, a way of looking at things which you had thought special and particular to you. Now here it is, set down by someone else, a person you have never met, someone even who is long dead, and it's as if a hand has come out and taken yours, said Alan Bennett in his much-celebrated play, The History Boys. And that's pretty much what this podcast will encompass. It's not a history of poetry thing. It's impossible to say where poetry begins, really. Nope. This podcast is but a mere selection of poems from some of the brightest stars ever to have spread light on this earth. Poems that I hope will invigorate, inspire, or even console you. Whether it be ten stanzas or just one little line. Something to take with you from tonight and carry on with you until you shuffle off this mortal coil. Something that captivates the imagination and makes you think, you know what, that poetry podcast thing, it really wasn't that shit. And I guess that's kind of where poetry all begins. No, not from a cheap joke, but from a captivated imagination. And what better place to start proceedings than with that of an eight-year-old girl. How Does It Feel to Be a Tree? by Sophie Greenwood How does it feel to be a tree? Does it hurt when people pull bark off you? Do you ever cry? Are you happy because you give small animals a home? What does it feel like when people slam an axe into you? Do you feel warm when squirrels hug your branches? How does it feel to be a tree? the eight-year-old Sophie Greenwood there, who is very much like John Keats, go with it. Keats often sought to inhabit something without reaching after the fact. He often wrote poetry whilst trying to eliminate his own personality in order imaginatively to enter into that of a person, animal or object, kind of like Sophie did. He called it negative capability and often criticised other poets like Samuel Coleridge for their fervent pursuit of philosophical truth. An idea that was never more prominently suggested than in the immortal lines, Beauty is truth, truth, beauty. That is all ye know on earth, and all ye need to know. From his wonderful poem, Ode to a Grecian Urn. But it's the ocean that Keats will take us for a stroll along in this podcast. A poem for those who could probably do with a break from the city. On the Sea 
by John Keats. It keeps eternal whisperings around desolate shores, and with its mighty swell gluts twice ten thousand caverns till the spell of Hecate leaves them their old shadowy sound. Often tis in such gentle temper found, that scarcely will the very smallest shell be moved for days from where it sometime fell, when last the winds of heaven were unbound. O ye, who have your eyeballs vexed and tired, feast them upon the wideness of the sea. O ye, whose ears are dinned with uproar rude, or fed too much with cloying melody, sit ye near some old cabin's mouth and brood, until ye start as if the sea nymphs quiet. Continuing on the oceanic theme, we arrive at Percy B. Shelley, who, when his lifeless body was washed up on the shores of Viareggio in Italy following the sinking of his boat, was found to have had a book of Keats' poems in his jacket pocket. Shelley, whose second wife Mary was the author of Frankenstein, adored Keats and tried to get him to come to Italy to help aid him with his tuberculosis. Keats was too unwell and never made it to Shelley, although he did make it to Rome, where soon after he passed away. When Shelley learned of Keats' passing, he was devastated, and not seven weeks after his funeral, he memorialised Keats in his epic poem, Adonais, which is well worth checking out. But in this podcast, as you might be wondering where the time's going, Percy ponders upon the unconquerable, in this quick look at eternity, entitled Time. Unfathomable sea, whose waves are years, ocean of time, whose waters of deep woe are brackish with the salt of human tears. Thou shoreless flood, which in thy ebb and flow claspest the limits of mortality, and sick of prey yet howling on for more, vomitest thy wrecks on its inhospitable shore, treacherous in calm and terrible in storm. Who shall put forth on thee unfathomable sea? Shelley was also a rebellious type. He was considered for his time subversive and anarchic. He was kicked out of Oxford University for publishing an essay entitled The Necessity of Atheism. He also professed the benefits of being vegetarian in A Vindication of Natural Diet and narrowly avoided arrest in Ireland for distributing pamphlets designed to start a revolution for an independent island, even though he was English. He was no doubt an egalitarian who defended the working class. But never better could he rouse a rebellious soul more than in his poem about the Peterloo Massacre entitled The Mask of Anarchy. Rise like lions after slumber, in unvanquishable number. Shake your chains to earth like dew which in sleep had fallen on you. Ye are many, they are few. You might have heard that recently appropriated by Jeremy Corbyn, or misappropriated depending which way you lean, but nevertheless an appealing verse to rouse any wannabe revolutionary. I'm sure we've all been on a march, and then popped into a Weatherspoons for a cheeky doom bar after but I dare say that there's one man, Irishman even, with which those words may have fallen on deaf ears. And that's W.B. Yeats, William Butler Yeats to his mum, and here in this poem, The Great Day, 
he highlights the capricious nature of the revolutionary, if not mankind in general. Hurrah for revolution, and more cannon shot. A beggar upon horseback lashes a beggar upon foot. Hurrah for revolution, and cannon come again. The beggars have changed places, but the lash goes on. So if you're a young revolutionary on the road to unyielding power, don't lose your scruples and act like a dick when you get there. Going back to Shelley, who was very much an idealist and visionary, one of his best buds, George Gordon, a.k.a. Lord Byron, was very much the realist. Though possessing similar political traits to that of Shelley, he was more moody, alluringly dark, cynical and ironic. Because of he, the phrase Byronic was coined to describe a person who omitted these characteristics. He lived his life in excess, built up massive debts and was a serial shagger of both sexes and supposedly his half-sister. He was described by Lady Caroline Lamb, of whom he had an affair with, as mad, bad and dangerous to know. And in his younger years at Trinity College, he kept a tame bear as a pet. But it wasn't all fun and games for his lordship. He was dogged by a birth defect or club foot as it was called and his mother was a monstrous alcoholic who referred to him as that lame brat, and despite him being a seemingly confident extrovert, it shook him to the core, though no doubt this was most likely the catalyst for his desire to be the best. Not only did he tell it like it is, he told it like it should be. He had an acerbic wit paralleled only by Oscar Wilde, I dare say, and in his epic poems Don Juan and Child Harold's Pilgrimage, he shocked and wowed Victorian readers with his biting political, social and ideological satire. He was also bloody funny. He wasn't backwards about coming forwards and he went after everyone. Amongst his many targets were William Wordsworth, who he referred to as Turdsworth, and John Keats, who he called that Cockney poet. Though Keats died of tuberculosis, it was often profaned that he died following a savage review of one of his works, Byron did nothing to assuage that opinion when he wrote in Don Juan, "'Tis strange the mind that very fiery particle should let itself be snuffed out by an article." Harsh. Though he did concede later that had Keats lived longer than his tender twenty-five years, he may have gone on to something very special, in his eyes anyway. But Byron wasn't all mouth and no trousers. Not long before his death, he joined the Greek War of Independence, fighting against the Ottoman Empire before succumbing to a fever, exacerbated by bloodletting, nearly a year later. But despite all this, he was no doubt a romantic, exhibited here in his most favourited poem, She Walks in Beauty. A poem that could be considered about the unexplainable dawning of love. She walks in beauty, like the night of cloudless climes and starry skies, and all that's best of dark and bright meet in her aspect and her eyes, thus mellowed to that tender light which heaven to gaudy day denies. One shade the more, one ray the less had half impaired the nameless grace which waves in every raven tress or softly lightens o'er her face, where thoughts serenely sweet express how pure, how dear their dwelling place. And on that cheek, 
and o'er that brow, so soft, so calm, yet eloquent, the smiles that win, the tints that glow, but tell of days in goodness spent, a mind at peace with all below, a heart whose love is innocent. The wondrous beginnings of love may be, but not all lovers experience a happy ending. Don't be cheap. What happens when only one party is caught by one of Cupid's arrows? We all know that someone who is being taken for a ride, a cherished friend being made emotionally bankrupt by a sentimental fraud or usurer. I'm of the opinion that William Blake covered this very subject as early as 1794, and no doubt a dark practice that had been executed eons before that. William Blake was a jack-of-all-trades and a master of all. Not only a wonderful poet, but also an incredible painter and illustrator. His paintings and illustrations matched his literary prowess. His painting of hell from Dante's Inferno is mesmerising and chilling in equal measure. You should check it out. Though spiritual, his opposition to organised religion was brave and radical. But in this poem, he gracefully tackles the matter of the destructive consequences of loveless sex, valuable advice to any friend who may be nothing but a sex toilet to an opportunistic predator. The Sick Rose by William Blake O rose, thou art sick, the invisible worm that flies in the night in the howling storm has found out thy bed of crimson joy, and his dark, secret love does thy life destroy. Of course, this isn't always the case. Flowers do blossom. Some couples get off to a flying start. The courting process can be nothing short of majestic. People fall in love. Strong friendships are formed, and before you know it, not a day goes by without one basking in the shimmering hue of affection or galloping through fields of laughter. It's marvellous. Until maybe one day the laughter stops, and affection becomes affectation. This happened to the best of us, and if it hasn't happened to you, then go fun yourself, you lucky f But if it has, or is happening right now, you know that the breakdown of a relationship is one of the most gut-wrenching feelings one can experience. But take heed, you are not alone. As highlighted in this little ditty entitled, There is no loneliness, only wilderness. So when the sun sinks out of sight, and the night is all but blue, Seek not that shaded strange delight obscuring all your view. Though summer's warmth was swept away by sudden startling storms, no flower in its sweetest day could outlive winter's forms. Yet seasons always come and go, and life will fall and climb. Nothing can outgrow tomorrow, so all that's left is time. That friend and foe of all that stew in sickness and in pain. Still they'll not grow those pastures new without your drops of rain. So if you're wandering through the rough and cast on foreign ground, my friend, you're never lost enough to ever go unfound. That poem was written for a dear friend of mine, by me. That's right, 
snuck a little handmade stealth poem in there, didn't I? I know what you're thinking. I didn't sign up to listen to your crap, but tough. It's my podcast, so... Anyway, moving on swiftly away from me. There is a certain amount of bravery involved in ending a relationship, whether it's both parties coming to agreement or one biting the bullet. At no stage is it quick and painless. Venturing into the unknown unaccompanied is a daunting prospect, but limping into it shackled by the history of a thousand disagreements is worse. But some limp on anyway and drag others along with them. Philip Larkin was not one for marriage. He noted in the Wits and Weddings, based on his experiences of being an attendee, that the women shared the secret like a happy funeral. No, marriage seemed to fall into the category of just ordinary things, for which Larkin had a deft touch at humorously and rhetorically deriding. Often thought of as a cynical poet, He was once asked after a reading by an undergraduate why his poems expressed a melancholy view of life, to which he replied, I didn't invent old age and death. Nonetheless, it's difficult not to find the charm and brilliance in his direct and sceptical style, and it should never be said that he was without feeling. In An Arundel Tomb, he ends the poem with the endearing line, What will survive of us is love. But going back to the consequences of a relationship that's passed its sell-by date, in this poem entitled This Be the Verse, Larkin considers the effects of transgenerational unhappiness. They fuck you up, your mum and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with the faults they had, and some extra, just for you. But they were fucked up in their turn by fools in old-style hats and coats, who half the time were soppy stern, and half at one another's throats. Man hands on misery to man. It deepens like a coastal shelf. Get out as early as you can, and don't have any kids yourself. I promise you there will be happy stuff. We will get to some happy stuff. Promise. But I think Larkin's sardonic take on the fragility of pair bonding highlights the dangers of what happens when a dream dies, or maybe, more accurately, when a dream is not achieved. We all have a dream of something, and when it slips away or unveils itself as an actual nightmare, it sends us into a spiral of negativity. However, it's one thing to not achieve yours through your own efforts, or lack thereof, but it's an entirely different kettle of fish to have your dream quashed by the oppressive actions of another in a position of power and authority. Langston Hughes was not only a poet, playwright and novelist, but also a social activist. He was a pioneer of jazz poetry, and aside from being black in a time of segregation, it's also been suggested by academics that he was a closet homosexual, due to the possible codes that he hid within his poems. No doubt his works inspired Martin Luther King too. Hughes was a subscriber to the fundamental principles of socialism. Much like many of Dr. King's associates, he was lured to the idea as an alternative to a segregated America. Black, red and gay, Hughes was fighting multiple battles on many fronts. And in his poem Harlem, which was almost certainly the ripple that led to Dr. King's tsunamic I Have a Dream speech 12 years later, He asks what the ramifications are when a person is asked to pull himself up by the bootstraps 
having not been given the straps to begin with. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat? Or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load. Or does it explode? If you are fortunate enough to have unobstructed pathways towards a dream, then even you might be left pontificating on whether you are indeed on the right path. Time and time again we hear of one who is at a metaphorical crossroads, caught in the traffic of uncertainty. What do I want to do? Is it too late to go travelling? Should I change career? Should I take a career that yields little return financially? Should I marry? Should I start a family now? Should I pack up and move to the country? Or should I sweat buckets in the neo-feudalistic pursuit of an unobtainable city mortgage? You're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't, in the words of Bart Simpson. Do I think Robert Frost would have agreed? Robert Frost was an American four-time Pulitzer Prize-winning poet amongst multiple decorations. He used realistic rural depictions to explore complex social and philosophical themes. He was venerated by John F. Kennedy. Frost even read at JFK's inauguration at the gentle age of 87. When JFK made an address to Amherst College, Massachusetts in 1963 following Frost's death, the then-president cited the importance of such an artist's role in society, saying, When power corrupts, poetry cleanses. Frost was an experienced rambler. His sense of direction and fearlessness in the wild was evident in his life as well as his poetry. So this one is for those who, contrary to all the warning signs ahead, are considering taking the unorthodox and precarious route toward happiness. The Road Not Taken by Robert Frost Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveller. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could, to where it bent in the undergrowth, then took the other, as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that the passing there had really warned them about the same and both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, but knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood and I. I took the one less travelled by, And that has made all the difference. But not everyone can achieve the dream. For some, it's eternally within touching distance. For others, it might not even appear. Whatever the situation, one must remind oneself that wherever placed in the pursuit of happiness, you are alive. And as long as you have your health, you can keep buggering on 
as Winston used to say. The American poet and novelist Charles Bukowski would often extrapolate on these sorts of themes, but from the point of view of someone who was born and raised in the gutter, as a boy he was brutally beaten by his father with his mother's acquiescence. He was a shy and socially withdrawn child, which continued during his teenage years due to a severe case of acne vulgaris. Frequently, he would have to go to hospital to have large boils seared from his face and back. But he was a fighter, and though he was constantly bullied, he always gave back as good as he got, win or lose. Despite his traumatic childhood, he found a way through. He took solace in writing short stories, and invariably, this was his balm. He stated later in life that, Take a writer away from the typewriter, and all you have left is the sickness that started him writing in the first place, echoing Emily Dickinson's sentiments from earlier. Bukowski was a fierce drinker and a chain smoker. His work reflected the life of ordinary poor Americans, booze, relationships, and the crippling monotony of working dead-end and low-paid jobs was the fuel for Bukowski's fiery works. The recently departed Lennon Cohen said of him, he brought everyone down to earth, including the angels. Though sometimes misconstrued as a beat poet, he was anything but. He didn't dig on weed and wasn't anywhere near the hippie scene of the 60s. Compared to Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg et al., he wasn't just a different sport. He was a different planet. He was a warts and all writer, literally. He laid it down, simple as you like, to the point without any need of being ostentatious, no tricks. Whereas Robert Frost, for instance, was a stickler for metre and rhyme, saying, free verse is like playing tennis with the net down. Bukowski, much like his outlook on life, couldn't give a shit about structure. As the spirit wanes, the form appears, he once wrote in his short poem, Art. And it's in this piece, entitled, How is your heart? It gives an insight into the kind of spirit needed to triumph over real adversary. During my worst times, on the park benches, in the jails, or living with whores, I always had this certain contentment. I wouldn't call it happiness, it was more of an inner balance that settled for whatever was occurring. And it helped. In the factories and when relationships went wrong with the girls. It helped through the wars. In the hangovers. The back alley fights. The hospitals. To awaken in a cheap room in a strange city and pull up the shade. This was the craziest kind of contentment. And to walk across the floor to an old dresser with a cracked mirror see myself ugly. Grinning at it all. What matters most is how well you walk through the fire. Henry Charles Bukowski, no stranger to the tiresome nature of a life overlooked by fortune. William Shakespeare asked in Hamlet's To Be or Not To Be soliloquy, for my money the greatest poem of all time, and for obvious reasons I won't recite it here, who would fardels bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life, but that the dread of something after death? Is it all worth it? And is the motivation in life for some the fear of the alternative? In the case of Emily Bronte, death wasn't to be feared, but rather the process of dying. 
I swear the happier poems are coming. I will not renege on that promise. The happier poems are coming. Emily, the middle child of the three Bronte sisters, was of course famed for her only novel, Wuthering Heights, but information on her is sparse. Like Emily Dickinson, she was a recluse and kept little friends, if any, but she was a poet of distinction. In the week following the sudden death of her brother Branwell, she developed a severe cold that led to tuberculosis. During the decline of her health, she continued to refuse any kind of medical help, saying, I will have no poisoning doctor near me. Much like Dylan Thomas's eminent poem Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night, here Bronte notes that when the icy grip of death adorns one's shoulder, one must exert courage to turn and look him in the eyes. The Old Stoic by Emily Bronte Riches I hold in light esteem, and love I laugh to scorn, And lust of fame was but a dream that vanished with the morn. And if I pray, the only prayer that moves my lips for me Is leave this heart that now I bear, and give me liberty. Yes, as my swift days near their goal, tis all that I implore. In life and death, a chainless soul, with courage to endure. One who continuously saw the rotting fruits of the Grim Reaper's labour firsthand was Edgar Allan Poe. His mother, the English actress Elizabeth Arnold Hopkins Poe, died of tuberculosis, standard, when he was an infant, just a year after his father, the American actor David Poe Jr., had abandoned the family. Though never adopted officially, young Edgar was taken in by John Allen, a Scottish merchant in Richmond, Virginia. During Edgar's life, he went from Richmond to schools in Scotland and London, the now hipster-laden Stoke Newington to be precise. He joined the army in Boston and then, once discharged, tried to support himself as a writer in New York and Baltimore. During this time, he witnessed the death of his foster mother, elder brother Henry, and crucially his young wife Virginia, who was also his first cousin. This undeniably had a huge influence on his macabre writings. Many of his short stories and poems feature the death and, sometimes resurrection, of a beautiful woman, not the least in his seminal poem, The Raven. The Raven made Poe an overnight sensation. It was published far and wide. Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote to him saying, Your Raven has produced a sensation, a fit of horror here in England. Some of my friends are taken by the fear of it, and some by the music. I hear of persons haunted by... Nevermore. Abraham Lincoln was said to have learnt it off by heart, and in a letter to his son Cyril, Oscar Wilde wrote that, Tonight I go to visit a great poet who has given me a wonderful book about a raven. The aforementioned poet was Mallarmé, by the way. Though there were a few sticks in the mud, notably W.B. Yeats, William Butler Yeats to his mum, who called it insincere and vulgar, and Ralph Waldo Emerson who sneeringly referred to Poe as the Jingle Man. Though a literary success, The Raven returned no financial success, and despite a stunning collection of further works, it was only posthumously that most became revered. Poe died broke. On October 3rd, 1849, Poe was found delirious on the streets of Baltimore, in great distress and in need of immediate assistance, according to Joseph W. Walker, who found him. He was taken to the Washington Medical College, where he died four days later. 
It's not clear what actually killed him, and his death has forever been shrouded in mystery, not least due to the fact that when he was found on that fateful night, he was wearing someone else's clothes. From beginning to end, Poe lived in the shadow of glory. It's undeniable that anything but this darkened life was the catalyst to his fantastic and chilling tales. And so now, The Raven, by Edgar Allan Poe. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. Tis some visitor, I muttered, tapping at my chamber door. Only this and nothing more. Ah, distinctly I remember. It was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow, vainly I had sought to borrow from my books surcease of sorrow, sorrow for the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore, nameless here, for evermore. And the silken, sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before, so that now, to still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating to some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door. This it is, and nothing more. Presently, my soul grew stronger, hesitating then no longer. Sir, said I, or madam, Truly, your forgiveness I implore, but the fact is I was napping, and so gently you came rapping, and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door, that I scarce was sure I heard you. Here I opened wide the door. Darkness there, and nothing more. Deep into that darkness peering long I stood there, wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before. But the silence was unbroken, and the stillness gave no token, and the only word there spoken was the whispered word, Lenore. This I whispered, and an echo murmured back the word Lenore, merely this and nothing more. Back into the chamber turning, all my soul within me burning, soon again I heard a tapping somewhat louder than before. Surely, said I, surely that is something at my window lattice, let me see then what thereat is in this mystery explore. Let my heart be still a moment, and this mystery explore. Tis the wind, and nothing more. Open here I flung the shutter, then with many a flirt and flutter in there stepped a stately raven of the saintly days of yore. Not the least obeisance made he, not a minute stop or stayed he, but with mien of lord or lady perched above my chamber door, perched upon a bust of palace just above my chamber door, perched and sat, and nothing more. Then this ebony bird beguiling my sad fancy into smiling by the grave and stern decorum of the countenance it wore. Though thy crest be shorn and shaven, thou... I said, art sure no craven, ghastly, grim, and ancient raven, wandering from the nightly shore? Tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's Platonian shore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Much I marveled this ungainly fowl to hear discourse so plainly, though its answer little meaning, little revelancy bore. 
for we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door, bird or beast upon the sculptured bust above his chamber door, with such a name as Nevermore. But the raven, sitting lonely on that placid bust, spoke only that one word as if his soul in that one word he did outpour. Nothing farther than he uttered, not a feather than he fluttered, till I scarcely more than muttered, Other friends have flown before. On the morrow he will leave me as my hopes have flown before. Then the bird said, Nevermore. Startled at the stillness broken by reply so aptly spoken, Doubtless, said I, what it utters is its only stock and store, Caught from some unhappy master whom a merciful disaster Followed fast and followed faster till his songs one burden bore, Till the dirges of his hope that melancholy burden bore Of never, nevermore. But the raven, still beguiling all my sad soul into smiling, Straight I wheeled a cushioned seat in front of bird and bust and door, then upon the velvet sinking, I betook myself to linking fancy unto fancy, thinking what this ominous bird of yore, what this grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt, and ominous bird of yore meant in croaking, nevermore. This I sat engaged in guessing, but no syllable expressing to the fowl whose fiery eyes now burned into my bosom's core. This and more I sat divining with my head at ease reclining on the cushion's velvet lining that the lamplight gloated o'er. But whose velvet violet lining, with the lamplight gloating o'er, she shall press. <sighs> Nevermore. Then methought the air grew denser, perfumed from an unseen censer swung by seraphim whose footfalls tinkled on the tufted floor. Wretch! I cried. Thy God hath lent thee, by these angels he hath sent thee, respite, respite, and nepenthe from thy memories of Lenore. Quaff, O oh, quaff this kind nepenthe, and forget this lost Lenore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, whether tempter sent or whether tempest tossed thee here ashore, desolate yet all undaunted, on this desert land enchanted, on this home by horror haunted, tell me truly, I implore, is there, is there balm in Gilead? Tell me, tell me I implore! Quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, by that heaven that bends above us, by that God we both adore, tell this soul with sorrow laden, if within the distant Aden it shall clasp a sainted maiden whom the angels name Lenore, clasp a rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Be that word our sign of parting, bird or fiend! I shrieked, upstarting. Get thee back into the tempest and the night's plutonian shore. Leave no black plume as a token of that lie thy soul has spoken. Leave my loneliness unbroken. Quit the bust above my door. Take thy beak from out my heart and take thy form from off my door! Quoth the raven, nevermore. And the raven, never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting on that pallid bust of Pallas just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming 
of demons that is dreaming, and the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor. And my soul, from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor, shall be lifted nevermore. I did promise happier stuff, and happier stuff will be coming. Let's call it an encore. Um, I just want to take this opportunity to thank you for downloading this podcast. Uh, It's my first and probably a little bit uh, rough around the edges. A lot of people that have podcasts, I'm sure you're aware, they use Patreon or they have supporters, subscribers, or ask for donations. Um, Eventually, I would like to monetize these things, I'm sure, but for the moment, I'm not asking for anything other than if you enjoyed this podcast and you would like to make a donation, then please go to www.rosemere.org.uk. It's a cancer charity that are doing wonderful things up north in Preston. Uh, It's one that's close to my heart. So if you do feel like this was worth some kind of bit of cash, then go to www.rosemere.org.uk and make a nice, generous donation to a wonderful charity. That's R-O-S-E-M-E-R-E, rosemere.org.uk. Thank you for considering that. But on with the show, or at least the encore. Let's call this the encore poem. Max Ehrman was an American poet of German descent, um, and he wrote probably one of the most famous poems of all time, if not the most famous poem. It's normally something that you would find um, emblazoned on a tea towel or some cheaply framed, badly styled piece of artwork that you could buy as a piece of tat from TK Maxx, but nonetheless, it's probably still worth a cheap investment if you see it. It's called Desiderata. I'm sure you probably know it, uh, which is Latin for desired things. And I don't think that there's anything else he's left off the list that could be desired. Um, So this is the bonus poem, the encore poem. Thank you for downloading. Please do check out Rosemere. Um, Yes, this is Desiderata by Max Ehrman. Go placidly amid the noise and the haste, and remember what peace there may be in silence. As far as possible, without surrender, be on good terms with all persons. Speak your truth quietly and clearly, and listen to others, even to the dull and the ignorant. They too have their story. Avoid loud and aggressive persons. They are vexations to the spirit. If you compare yourself with others, you may become vain or bitter, for always there will be greater and lesser persons than yourself. Enjoy your achievements, as well as your plans, 
keep interested in your own career however humble, it is a real possession in the changing fortunes of time. Exercise caution in your business affairs, for the world is full of trickery. But let this not blind you to what virtue there is. Many persons strive for high ideals and everywhere life is full of heroism. Be yourself, especially do not feign affection. Neither be cynical about love, for in the face of all aridity and disenchantment it is as perennial as the grass. Take kindly the counsel of the years, gracefully surrendering the things of youth. Nurture strength of spirit to shield you in sudden misfortune, but do not distress yourself with dark imaginings. Many fears are born of fatigue and loneliness. Beyond a wholesome discipline, be gentle with yourself. You are a child of the universe, no less than the trees and the stars. You have a right to be here. And whether or not it is clear to you, no doubt the universe is unfolding as it should, therefore be at peace with God. Whatever you conceive him to be, and whatever your labors and aspirations in the noisy confusion of life, keep peace in your soul, with all its sham, drudgery, and broken dreams, it is still a beautiful world. Be cheerful, strive to be happy.